He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nineteen fifty-three, leading New Zealand official murdered in bed, and New Zealand awoke with a jerk. My understanding of the Larson case was that he was abusing the the men, the prisoners. I think that he's a cruel person. Well, all I knew in New Zealand was that these boys chopped him up. It's a bad incident. Bad for New Zealand. Bad for New Zealand. Bad for everybody. Everything went wrong. My father never talked about those times, never talked about when he was a cop. I asked him about it. He said, Larson treated our people like tupa. Tupa in Niue is slavery. Kia ora, mālo lelei. I'm Koro Uta. You're listening to Untold Pacific, a five-part series exploring some dark corners of modern Pacific history. The supposedly cursed Sheraton Hotel in the Cook Islands, the dawn raids in New Zealand, Samoa's deadly Black Saturday, and the string of Fiji coups. We'll look at the history behind them and hear stories from the people who were there. In this episode, we look at a story that explores the balance of power and control between Nguyen's and New Zealanders and the way the justice system played out for three young men involved in the murder of a New Zealander sent to run the island. But first things first, Niue was settled by early Polynesians around 900 AD, but as competing European interests arrived in the Pacific in the 1800s, Niueans turned to Britain for protection. Initially they were rebuffed, but Queen Victoria finally agreed to make Niue a British protectorate in 1900. Except the very next year, the island was handed on to New Zealand, who annexed it and sent a resident commissioner to take charge. However, the role and its boundaries were never clearly defined, and often former military men were sent to do the job. And that created a bunch of problems that we'll unwrap in just a moment. The controversial figure at the centre of the story is Cecil Hector Watson Larson, Commissioner of New Air for 10 years from 1943 to 1953, one of Nui's longest-serving commissioners. Almost 3,000 kilometres from New Zealand, Nui is one of the largest coral atolls in the world, and back in Larson's time, it was made up of 12 villages. Today, it's subdivided into 14. This is archival audio from Notebook on Nui in 1974 for NZBC's Inside Programme. From the sky, it looks like a head of a person. That's the shape of the whole island. Looking from the sea, it's a flat piece of land with plenty of rocks around the coast and plenty of coconut trees and other bushy trees. Captain Cook was the first European to set his sights on the island in 1774 during his second Pacific voyage, and he named it Savage Island. The only savage today is the soil, harsh and uninviting. New Zealand had the vision of being the great southern empire. Historian Michael Field. And Yuke was part of it. The whole concept of administering a native people was that we would send chaps out to run the place and they would write the odd report 
and send it back. But essentially, that chap has been sent out to do the thing, and unless it all goes horrendously wrong, they're not going to bring him back. Cecil Larson was the ninth person sent to administer Niue. He was described as a boisterous man who was larger than life, a loud-talking, hard-working, back-slapping sort of guy. When he was appointed, he was a 35-year-old family man with a wife and two kids who'd already worked around the Pacific in various government administration roles. On paper, he was solid. You could say he was primed for the role. There was this terrible period in the 50s in New Zealand. Sort of white man's rule still was really important. By that time, the early 1950s, Niue had a population of around 4,500, with a growing expat community who pretty much made up their own set of rules. They were in positions of power. The whole business of taking over Niue was just an absurdity that we were there to protect the Polynesian people from Asians mainly, and also to protect a sort of bloodline that somehow or another we felt was our God-given right to, to guard and protect. And that also included the influence of the missionaries, who'd arrived in the 1830s and believed that so-called native or primitive people needed to be educated in the ways of the white man. The belief when they come was that we were pagans, we were uneducated, we didn't know anything much, and that we have come to give them the light to teach them properly. Tose Tuhipa was born and brought up in Niue during the Larsen administration. Crikey, we had our own laws, we had our own ways of doing things, we had our own ways of learning, which were totally and absolutely not recognised. None of Niue's history or the history of the Pacific were taught in schools. We were taught the history of the white man from Britain and the history of the white people in New Zealand. When Larson became the resident commissioner in 1943, his goal was to create change, which would have a massive impact on the Nguyen way of life and its cultural practices. Hifiuru, which is a hair-cutting ceremony for all males and when they enter puberty. And it's a huge celebration because that's becoming a man. When Larson came to Nui and others, they tried to stop that custom. Other Nuans remember the Larson years more fondly. He was big on education and saw it as a priority that would benefit the local people. And high-achieving local students were offered opportunities to further their education in New Zealand. But his attitude towards people didn't always go down quite as well. Some might even call it racist. To us young people of my village, he was just another palangi, another white person who was there to do the job for New Zealand. We were the savages, the uneducated black bastards used to call our men. And his idea of a good education didn't include the local language. There were two main dialects, the older Motu dialect from the north and the Tafiti, and some felt he was trying to eradicate Vangahau Niue completely. He came in like a tornado. When I went to school, I did have junior high school at Niue before I left to come to New Zealand. We were not allowed to speak our language because it would interfere with 
our proper learning of learning the English language so we can do well in other things in the world. Life in Niue was changing under Larson's rules and it was happening faster than anyone could keep up, which meant some resisted change. It teaches you that you and your culture, your language is not important. For you to be somebody, you need to learn this language, this culture, this history. When um, somebody said to me that I couldn't use Bungahauniwe, I just stopped talking. And a lot of us did too. When Palangi teachers came around, we didn't talk until they go past. And then, of course, we start talking in Bungahauniwe again. There were those who struggled to keep up with this new education system and eventually dropped out of school. But these kids were getting restless and petty crimes were on the rise. Larson wanted this behaviour stamped out. He interrogated young men and boys who were hanging out on the streets and loitering outside shops, approaching them with a loud and intimidating voice. And after missionary Mariu Chek arrived in Niue, his house was burgled. The whole island paid the price. Larson imposed strict curfews across the villages. Curfew Ordinance 1950, number 40. An ordinance to impose restrictions to maintain peace and order in Niue. 30 June 1950. No person shall make One. or cause Short or permit time. to be made a large noise in the village and every person resident in the village shall within half an hour retire to the house daylight on the following day. No person shall conduct or assist to conduct or continue to conduct or be present at any new way in gathering or sports or dancing or exhibition. Resentment was growing amongst the villagers. Larson had gone in with a plan to clean up the island and eradicate disease and if a heavy-handed approach was necessary, so be it. Larson was a former chief of police on the island, and he liked to keep them on his side. One police officer was Tosse's dad, and on Larson's rounds of the villages, he often visited her family's home. He would talk to my dad, and me and my cousins, we actually knew who he was. I wasn't afraid of him. Larson was in charge of everything on the island, making up the rules as he went along. Under his reforms, locals were banned from drinking alcohol. The same went for making and consuming home brew. And if you were caught swearing, there were also heavy fines. Family and cultural gatherings also needed his permission. But there were double standards. Palangi could drink, smoke and socialise whenever they wanted, without repercussion. But for the locals, life was becoming more restrictive at every turn and challenging Larson could get you thrown in jail. There were so many people who were jailed during his time for stupid little minor misdemeanours, you know. Larson's administration also charged large fines to anyone caught cheating on their wife or husband. One pound for the first offence, up to 20 days in prison for the second, and if caught a third time, it could mean up to 50 days behind bars. My father, he was actually imprisoned before he became a cop. He and my mother had an affair. My mother was married. His wife died. Can you imagine that? Larson is showing the white man's way. Politician Missy Tainga Mini Young Vivian served twice as the Premier of Niue and has memories of working with Larson. 
this country was very poor. Those days were primitive days. Larsen was also determined to clean up Nui in more practical ways. Told the people in the village to cut the coconut trees down, have uh, fresh air and keep away the mosquitoes. Houses were painted, fallen trees that attract mosquitoes and subsequent disease were removed, better sanitation was introduced, and one of Larson's top priorities. There were a number of people who have no toilet. He would send them to prison. Larson was a force to be reckoned with, even if it meant applying fear and intimidation to get the job done. He was a very efficient man. He was very concerned with health, education, agriculture. He wanted his policies carried out quickly. Young Vivian says there was a fair bit of support for these Larson-led innovations. The economy was growing, kids were learning, sanitation improved. He was also an arrogant and cruel man. On a small, remote island, Larson had absolute power. There was no smoke at that time. He comes in the shop and look at the pasta, smokes half a cigarette and then stamp it and look at the pasta, see? That's how arrogant he was. He likes to scare people. And police used to go and hunt in their homes for homebrew. If you smell it, you're up to prison. And Larsen didn't get on well with the missionaries. For Larsen, the missionaries also stood in the way of his plans to implement new policies. And observing the Sabbath obstructed the flow of the banana trade and caused disruption and tension on the island. Because the missionaries also have a lot of power. And it's about power with the people. And Larsen didn't like that one bit. He was, in fact, my first boss. Ayao Lima was one of Nui's most senior diplomats. He began his career as a 15-year-old working under Larsen. Here he is in a recording for Tangata Atumau in 1994. The first resident commissioner that I worked under when I started to work for the Nui government. And when it came to doing the rounds of the villages, Ayao became Larsen's right-hand man, acting as a translator. So, and especially working in the recent commissioner's office, which was regarded as the king's palace. <laughs> I came here on a scholarship a long time ago and I went back. I was uh, still at the lower grades of the secondary school at the time. I could, you know, speak a little bit of English. And to the late Mr. Larson, perhaps uh, that was good enough for him to, as a channel of communication with the people in the villages. But while working under Larson, I also saw a glimpse of Larson's darker, more intimidating side. To me personally, he was a good boss. But to, to the others that I worked with, they reckoned he wasn't a good boss. He could be a kind person, could be a very harsh person, and he can adjust himself to suit a certain situation. The thing with Larson is that he showed a kinder face when Kiwi diplomats arrived on the island. But behind closed doors, things were different. He's a person with a very loud voice telling people off. Perhaps the voice he used on them could be a little bit harsher than what he used on me. We used to talk about it, why he, you know, he didn't bore at me. And maybe they said because I could speak a little bit of English, so it could be one of the reasons why he had some respect for me. One day, I was very new to the office at the time, and uh, there was another Nguyen boy working there. 
uh, about a couple of years older than me. Larson liked to bark orders at his employees, and on this occasion, the young boy who normally dealt with Larson's filing system wasn't in the office, so Ayal stepped into his place, not knowing how things worked. And so he said, well, you go and get this file. Went and grabbed the file straight away, went straight to his office. Then he called me back. He was holding the file. He was angry, and he said, you know what my boss did to me before when I gave him a file like this? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, he threw the file in my face. He said to me, well, I'm not going to do that to you, but don't do it again. For Ayao, it was a narrow escape. By early 1953, Larson had built a brand-new eight-room residency two miles from Elofi. It was situated near Funuakula Jail, which gave him ready access to surveillance of the prisoners. I think that he's a cruel person. Don Funaki worked as a clerical cadet in Larson's office, and right from the start, he bore the brunt of Larson's volatile and unpredictable nature. He's very cruel to people. He make up his own laws and kick people whenever he's uh, in the bad moods. Come on, boy, faster. Why don't you listen when I speak to you? On my first day at work, I was given a bundle of old government accounts to summarise. It was pretty hard because the accounts were in handwriting and I couldn't read most of it because they were old. Then he had a go at me. It was then that I'd walk out. Don returned to work the following day, but having challenged Larson, things were different and Larson had it out for him. Larson liked to make his presence felt wherever he went, and if anyone dared to cross the line, there was a price to pay. I was on my push bike coming home. They were at the old hotel list, Hamano. William, the self policeman, stopped me. Larson said for you to go back and pump in the water so that he could go to the toilet. I said no. So I just continued my way home. The following day I went back to work, he sacked me. I said, it's a bit unfair. I felt sore. Don ended up working at the transport department as a motor mechanic. But even then, he saw the harsh brutality of Larson's heavy-handed control over the prisoners. I used to go in the truck to get 44 gallons of petrol from the farm. And that's where I saw how prisoners were treated. He kicked them to have to carry a 44-gallon drum full of pig food to be taken to the styes. And that's when I felt sorry. Larson's militaristic approach with the prisoners lacked empathy or kindness. The men were forced to work 12-hour days without breaks. They were given the tiniest rations, a small portion of bread, just once a day. They were often tired and weak as they buckled under Larson's constant demands. He made them work in the rain and turned every task into a game of humiliation, making the men run around with heavy buckets of water from the only clean well available. Larson, of course, kept this for himself. The prisoners had to drink from another well filled with filthy water. Under these conditions, the men were getting angry. Three in particular, Foletolu, 
Tamaeli and Lotoatama were being pushed to their limits and they started plotting against him. Twenty-six-year-old Fuletolu had been in jail over a period of years for adultery in his teens. Liquor offences followed. He'd been slapped and kicked by Larson on numerous occasions, and failing to perform tasks, well, that resulted in physical punishment. Latuatama was 19 years old and claimed he was slapped around the head by Larson on a daily basis. Tamaeli was a young man who bore the greatest brunt of Larson's unpredictable outbursts. He couldn't understand English or Larson's commands, which resulted in severe beatings. Larson threw stones at him and struck him with ropes and sticks. I said, come here now. But just before Larson's murder, Latuatama had been caught sneaking whiskey while working at Larson's property. This enraged Larson, who by now was acting as judge, jury, and executioner. He charged Tamaeli with breaking and entering, adding two more years to his sentence. Later that day, the men banded together. They decided something drastic had to be done to end the cycle of mental and physical abuse in the prison. They wanted him dead. In the early hours of August 16th, 1953, five men escaped through the ceiling of one of the prison cells, while other prisoners danced and sang to muffle the noise of the breakout. On their way to Larson's property, they grabbed a bush knife and a 21-inch machete from the jail cookhouse. At the same time, Latuatama and Fuletolu cut the telephone wires. Sneaking into Larson's house, one of the men held a torch from the doorway to Larson's bed as Fuletolu, Latuatama and Tamaeli stood over Larson as he slept. And that's where they stabbed him. Mrs. Larson woke in another bed and as she reached her arm out, it was slashed by one of the knives. Then the men fled. Larson's son Billy ran out barefoot to try and find help. The three men involved in the murder sought refuge in the bushes. Hector Larson died not long after. Word about the murder spread quickly around the villages and also about the men involved. 1953. Leading New Zealand official murdered in bed and New Zealand awoke with a jerk. Don Funaki was one of the first men on the scene that next morning. When Larson was murdered on... Uh... Saturday night, I woke up early and met people on the road and they talk about Larson being murdered. They all come from the prison and I think they, they worked as a team. I think they've had enough, they have a guts for. So I was one of the first ones to be at the residency that morning. I went into his bedroom what a sight. All I can see is blood on the wall and the food he ate at night. So he got on his bike and headed off to a nearby village, Tamakautonga. On the discovery of Larson's murder, shockwaves rang through the island and travelled as far as New Zealand. 
a Kiwi brutally slain with a machete while sleeping in his own bed, the first New Zealand public servant to be killed on duty. At that particular time, Larson had decided to swap the cops around. Tosetu Hipper, the policeman's daughter, remembers what happened when the news got around. And so my dad was sent off to a village called Hakupu for a couple of weeks to be the policeman of that particular village and tribe. And we had somebody else with us. So when the call came through, my mother took the call. Somebody said, oh, the resident commissioner, Mr Larson, has been killed. Tose was six years old when Larson was murdered, and that's when her family discovered that the background to the murder lay closer to home. You know, my mother took the call from Malofi that the cop from Hakupu, who was with us at the time, he had to leave um, to go to um, Alofi, to the pier, all the, all the police who were being called in. And my father didn't come home. He went straight from Hakupu to Alofi. It was a very difficult time for us. One of the boys, the oldest one, Furitoru, was my dad's first cousin. So he was very, very, very close family. Tose believes the crime was provoked by cultural misunderstanding and Larson's sense of superiority. Newer you know, people, we don't have servants. We, there's no such thing in our culture. And to make young men servants to you and your wife and your family was the most horrible thing that you could do to young Niwe men. My father never talked about those times, never talked about when he was a cop, but um, only a couple of times when I was older, I asked him about it. He said, Larson treated our people like tupa. Tupa in Niwe is slavery. There were mixed emotions in the community. Some were sad and fond of Larson and the opportunities he'd brought to the people of Niwe. On the other hand, those closest to the men involved were angry that they'd been pushed to the brink. For those boys to actually did what they did, it would have um, taken a long time of abuse. At dawn today, a 1,000-man search party will set out to comb the island of Niue for the murderers of the resident commissioner, Mr Cecil Hector Watson Larson. All the people of Niue were ordered to hunt them down. People in the villages were protective of the young men who went into hiding for three days. Niue is covered in dense bush, and the villagers helped to cover the men's tracks, assisting them along the way. Because Furitoru was from our village, a lot of the talk was that they would come there because we have lots of caves. When the boys escaped our tribe of Hiktopaki, we waited for him to come home. And a lot of our people were very much in the same line of thinking as those three boys and that we would hide them. And they left food at their strategic places, and the same when they were outed. But not all Nguyen supported the three young men. 
the murder triggered fear that Nui's identity would be tarnished as an island of savages, just as Captain Cook had once named it. When these boys came out of the bush and gave themselves up, my dad was there. Someone abused them and spat on the boys. One of the people who were there at the time said that my dad took his police hat off because he wanted to hit someone else who had shown aggressiveness towards the three boys. One of the uncles was there and he hung on to his arm and said, no, just leave it. From the men's point of view, they were ridding the island of a tyrant and overthrowing an unjust regime. They would die for their country. They saw all the unfairness, the mistreatment of others. About three weeks after the murder, a trial was held in the High Court of Niue before Judge Leonard Sinclair, who travelled from New Zealand. With no jury system, Sinclair used six local assessors. The trial ran for less than two and a half days. The assessors deliberated for less than an hour before coming to a unanimous verdict. The men were found guilty of murder. Their sentence? Death by hanging. At the trial, the men signed confessions stating the alleged ill-treatment by Larson, but opinion was divided. Almost a month had passed since the murder. The High Court of Niue granted leave to the three men to appeal to the Supreme Court of New Zealand, which was held before three judges. But the appeal was dismissed, and the men were returned to Niue. When the media grabbed the story, rights activists began lobbying for an appeal, dividing opinions in New Zealand. And what might be surprising is that everyday people from New Zealand who had no association with the Nguyen community, also got up in arms, including church groups and even the women's division of Federated Farmers. The death penalty had already been abolished in New Zealand in the early 40s, but was restored by the National Party in 1950, but many saw it as barbaric. I sided with the people who said, hey, don't do it. Former Premier Misitanga Mene Young Vivian again. It woke New Zealand up so badly that they didn't know how to handle the case. There were a lot of news about that at that point in time. The people of Niue at that time felt that Lazen had it coming. Nobody could stop him. Everybody was in a shock. And when you're in a shock, you can't think properly. And some said, yeah, hang them. Some said, no. So everybody was confused. Don Funaki knows the exact site where the public hanging was meant to take place. Opposite the branch to go to the hospital, there is a deep well there dug by a white man. They get water, they dig it by hand and dynamite and what else. That's where they sit the things up. Gallows were being sent from Apia, but logistical problems obstructed the process. When Larson was murdered, everybody was sad about uh, what had happened. Then they start talking between themselves. You know, he deserved it, right? 
He's been ill-treating us for a long time. They feel sorry for the boys. Here's journalist and historian Michael Field again. The men were flown back from New Zealand to Niue for their execution, but Niue didn't have any gallows. The gallows were loaded onto a Hercules, and then the men had to sit on the gallows as they were flown back. You couldn't write a television drama like this. Condemned to death in Niue. When the New Zealand court dismissed the case, the men's fate looked to be sealed. By December, now five months after the murder, the three men were sent back to Niue for the hanging. But that public pressure in New Zealand resulted in a stay of execution while the case was investigated by the Privy Council. They were being dealt with in a, in a white man's court of law, and the law being the white man's law. Having somebody's law deal with you, they've got a language barrier. You don't know anything about it. I don't think it's a bit fair. The case caused a great deal of shame, not only in Niue, but also for New Zealand. After calls for an inquiry, letters and pleas for clemency, and numerous news stories, questions arose around the New Zealand government's failing to live up to its responsibility. Could the murder conviction stand in light of Larson's abusive behaviour and New Zealand's indifference? Back to that same piece of archival audio from 1994. Here's Ayao again. You know, in those days when we look back, there were a lot of things so like racial barriers and so forth. It was acceptable in those days. The Pālāngi kept to themselves. They live in good houses and, and we live in our traditional ways. In those days, the natives accept the term natives. But nowadays, if anybody uses natives, I don't think that's, uh, that is uh, acceptable. Some people uh, said, oh, um, I got a cuff on the head from him. Well, in those days, those are acceptable. Elder people can cuff a younger person's head. But I think people have different views of his uh, conduct uh, towards them. One of the other issues is that New Zealand hadn't been paying attention to what was happening in Niue. As far as they were concerned, no news was good news. And that's exactly what happened under Larson's administration. Larson had been in the role for a decade, despite at least three letters of complaint these alarm bells were ignored. Where were they, the justice system? Missy Taingamini Young Vivian says there were no processes in place back then to support administrators on the island. How do they monitor their own people who are operating or controlling Tukelo, Samoa, and Niue and the Cook Islands? I don't think the New Zealand government knew about these things. Don Funaki. Because in those days we don't have telephones because the license had been left here on his own too long. And uh, after that, the High Commissioner had a term of three years only. In the eyes of many Nuans, the three young men were standing up to right the wrongs of a serious injustice, and they weren't afraid of the consequences. Torsi says Larson's death felt inevitable. If those boys hadn't done what they did, New Air would have been a very different place now. It was basically the turning point, another milestone in our history. They were the heroes, the saviours of New Air. If whether it was those boys or somebody else, something horrible like that would have happened. Almost a year after the murder, in May 1954, after time spent in a Samoan jail, 
the prisoners had their death sentences commuted and were instead sentenced to life at Mount Eden Prison. Tamaeli spent 10 years in prison and given his freedom in 1964. He was the only one to return to Niue, but not long afterwards he was swept into the ocean while fishing off a rocky ledge, falling to his death. Lator Tama spent more than 11 years at Mount Eden Prison. On release, he found work at a mattress factory in Christchurch. He never returned to Niue and died of cancer in the early 90s. Fulitolu served the longest sentence, 18 years, more than a standard murder sentence. He was kept as a political prisoner. The Nguyen administration was sceptical he'd be accepted back in Nguyen, which created a series of delays in his release. During this drawn-out process, he was also sent to New Plymouth Jail and Tongarero Prison Farm. Meanwhile, his health was deteriorating. In 1970, he finally found freedom, but only on the condition that he remain in New Zealand. He settled in New Plymouth and passed away before 1991. I don't think we still learn proper lessons from these things yet. A lot of New Zealanders don't get the fact that we loaded up ships and sailed off and occupied them and, and pulled up our flag and said, you are now us and we're going to tell you what to do. There are people now who are sort of looking at the thing again, trying to defend Larson as a misunderstood bureaucrat. But we're in a different age now, and if the families of those people want some kind of explanation for what happens, I think we just owe it to them as historians and writers and storytellers. We are trying to show these things so that it may never happen again. Did New Zealand made a mistake? Did we make a mistake? Many of the, these questions we are not able to answer. Thanks for listening to this episode of Untold Pacific. I'm Koro Uta. This five-part series was produced by Sonia Yee and it was made possible through the RNZ New Zealand On Air Innovation Fund. Special thanks to Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision for archival audio and raw interview material provided courtesy of Tiki Lounge Productions. The executive producer for the RNZ podcast and series team is Tim Watkin, and you also heard Elliot Childs as Cecil Larson. If you'd like to listen again or to find out more, check out the RNZ series and podcast page and look for Untold Pacific, where you'll also find a video series produced by Tiki Lounge. You can also download the series wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.